Well, please remain standing, and we have the great opportunity to hear from God this morning as we open his word again. Let me have you take your Bibles and turn them to Mark, Mark's Gospel to chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 43 through 52 this morning as we continue working our way through this wondrous record of the life and ministry of Christ. Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. This is God's word to us. People of God, let us give attention to it and humble ourselves before it and rejoice in it as God speaks to us through it. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Lord, we Thank you again for your precious word that you have given to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work through that word and through the preaching of the word this morning that we might receive benefit, Lord, that we might be encouraged, that we might be humbled, that we might be convicted, and that we might rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things for our good, and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to begin this morning with a story. Now, you know me. I'm not the kind of preacher that likes to tell stories, but this one is important because this story is going to catch us up to where we are this morning in our text. The city of Jerusalem is asleep. The day has been a day of much excitement and religious ceremony. Earlier in the day, a multitude of lambs which had been brought from afar or bought in the city had been sacrificed according to the Old Testament Mosaic law. Later, after sunset, And probably well into the night, families had gathered and observed the the meal of Passover. They had eaten the lamb and the bread and the bitter herbs and drank the cups of wine. The words of remembrance had been recited, the question asked by the oldest child and answered by the father about the meaning of this meal. And certainly by now, this time in the evening, everyone had gone off to bed. 
But if one's attention had been drawn to a particular house, at a prepared upper room in that house, one might have noticed a little earlier in the evening a solitary figure leave in the midst of the meal. And he hurried on in the darkness and made his way either to the home of the high priest or maybe to that place in the temple known as the Hall of Hewn Stones, which was the meeting place of the great Sanhedrin. Back at the home from which he had left, a little later, a group of 12 men might have been seen leaving, walking down to the gate of the city, following that road that leads across the Kidron Valley and ascending the side of the Mount of Olives. If one listened closely enough, one could perhaps hear them speaking with their Galilean accents. One, the leader, does most of the talking, but at one point you might have noticed a a disagreement that seems to break out between him and the others. They seem sad, and the leader of the group seems especially distraught by some unseen tension. Partway up the Mount of Olives as they ascend, we see them branch off of the main road and follow a path. They seem to know where they're going. They arrive at one of the many gardens on the slope of the hill, gardens not with flowers and fountains, but with bare ground and with olive trees, and this one particularly with an olive press that's placed there so that the olive crop could be squeezed right away to get the oil out of it. And here the group splits up. Most of the men stay near the entrance, and a small group of about four of them continue on into the garden. And then one of them, the leader, goes on alone and appears to be now in great distress. He's praying. Back in the city, there's a flurry of activity. The man who had left earlier emerges once more into the street, accompanied by several others, and one of them goes ahead Uh, perhaps to the Antonia Fortress, which was a citadel on the northwest corner of the temple there in Jerusalem. It's a place where the Roman soldiers who were garrisoned there in the city to keep the peace uh, at all times, but especially during the Jewish feast, uh, where they would be housed. The man runs into that fortress and a short time later emerges again with a large group of Roman soldiers. From the area of the temple, another large group emerges, and the two groups meet together in the square there, and led by the man who had left the house earlier, follow the same path that the group of 12 had taken. After a few moments, they also arrive in this garden, this garden of the olive press, or in the Greek language, Gethsemane. And it is here that the two groups will meet and will set in motion the final hours of Jesus of Nazareth. Remember from last week that Jesus had prayed to his Father that if possible, this cup, this coming series of events might pass from him. Yet, remember, he said, not what I will, but what you will. Your will be done. And after returning then from three uh, 
prayers, three times of prayer, and finding his weary disciples sleeping, Jesus rouses them one more time and finally said, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And now he's here. As we look at these verses this morning, we're going to divide our time into um, looking at three topics. Betrayal, confrontation, and abandonment. First is betrayal. In fact, those final words of Jesus where he said in verse 42, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Those words had hardly left Jesus' lips when, Mark says, Judas arrives. It's interesting, at the beginning here, the last week we spoke so much about the the humanity of Jesus that was on display as his soul was, was fairly crushed by the weight of what was to come as he poured himself out in prayer to his Father. But in these verses, we begin with a reminder of Jesus' divine knowledge of all things. In verse 42, he knows who is coming and he knows what he has come to do. And all of that is fulfilled, Mark says, with that uh, phrase that he uses so often, that word that he uses so often in this book, it took place immediately. Into the garden, in the dark of the night, comes Judas. Verse 43 calls him Judas, one of the twelve, and we're reminded by that again of the treachery of Judas's actions. He was one of the twelve. He was one of Jesus' closest companions on this earth, an apostle of our Lord, chosen, given authority, sent out with Jesus' authority to preach and to heal and to cast out demons, a trusted companion of our Lord. It is he, one of those twelve, who has now come to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemy for a pittance, for money. A thief, we are told. A devil, Jesus called him. But also a friend, also a companion. This is the one who is at the the front of this column of soldiers coming into the garden. A crowd, Mark says. A crowd with swords and clubs. Sounds pretty barbaric. And as I mentioned in, in my little introductory story, this is a, a diverse group, two groups that have come together. Mark tells us that it is a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now those names should ring a bell to us. Those are names of people, of, a group, of groups that we are very familiar with from various places in our gospel that we've been reading. These are the constituent members, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, are constituent members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, this Jewish Supreme Court that wielded religious and civil and in some cases criminal authority. The group was made up of priests, current and former, Uh, family heads of the people and the priesthood. It's made up of those other groups that we know of, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And you'll remember that it was the Pharisees who early on, way back in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, took counsel with the pro-Roman Herodians to find a way to kill Jesus. And it was the representatives of the Sanhedrin who challenged Jesus' authority and in chapters 11 and 12, as we looked at, repeatedly tried to trap Jesus in his words by asking him these these trick questions to try to get him uh, to fail in some way, which he never did. And now it is the Sanhedrin who have sent this crowd, which, along with the Jewish leaders and the, the temple police, as they were called, is made up, John tells us in his gospel, of a band of soldiers, a band of, of Roman soldiers. The Judas and the Sanhedrin have, have procured for this. This crowd includes a, a detachment or a band of Roman soldiers. And at the head of all of this is this solitary person who knows the place and knows Jesus well enough to recognize him even in the middle of the night. Judas Iscariot a name that has become synonymous with betrayal and villainy and duplicity and treachery, a name that never makes the top 100 baby names. It's like naming your beautiful daughter Jezebel. It just doesn't happen. So reviled is the name which is too kind of too bad because the name Judas is just the Greek version of the Hebrew name Judah but next we see why that name is so hated by people verse 44 says now the betrayer by the way notice that in this which is his last mention in the book of Mark is not called Judas he's simply called the betrayer Now, he, Mark says, had given to the Sanhedrin, to the temple police, and to the soldiers, Mark tells us, a sign, something that they had agreed upon, a sign by which Judas coming into the garden with them would point out uh, the mark that they are to, to take. Now, if you think about that, we might ask, why do they need a sign? Jesus had been, as he says it here himself, In verse 49, day after day, he says, I was with you in the temple. And and Judas could have just said, this guy here. But they made a sign. Um, They would all recognize him. At least the Sanhedrin would recognize him. The the Roman soldiers, maybe not so much. The Sanhedrin, in fact, they're tired of looking at him. They know who he is. They want to do away with him. They probably know who he was, but the Roman soldiers didn't. So perhaps, especially in the middle of the night, in the dim, flickering light of torches and lanterns, some signal was called for. But I think that the use of a sign is not as important here as the sign itself. He kissed Jesus. That was the sign. He said, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. Now that sounds especially odd to us here in the West, but in the Middle East, then and still today, a kiss is a common means of greeting. 
where we might shake someone's hand, or if you're a hugger, you might hug someone. In the Middle East, they might kiss someone, uh, typically on the cheek or on the forehead. That's a common greeting. And throughout the Bible, we, we see it. Kisses have been used as a greeting. They've been used as a sign of friendship, a sign of a friendly kind of affection. They're a sign also of love, of homage, of respect throughout the Bible, but one time and one time only used as a sign of betrayal, and that's here. It's such a contrast that that is used here to bring home to us again the the heartlessness, the evil of, of the betrayal of Christ by a close friend. Remember the, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 41, 9. He said, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And that's sort of magnified here by the way that Judas identifies Jesus. In one of the other Gospels in Luke, Jesus asks Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? We're informed of that. We're informed as well of the instructions by Judas once Jesus was identified what they were to do. It says, the one I kiss is the man sees him and lead him away under guard. You know, this is not Jesus turn yourself in. They have come to take him by force if necessary. It's apparent with, with all of these precautions that are taken here with the procuring uh, of this Roman contingent, that, that there is at least some expectation of or an anticipation of some sort of resistance on the part of Jesus and his disciples. And now the moment comes as Judas enters the garden with this large group and just how large, we don't know. The, the words that are used technically would refer to about 600 soldiers, although it can refer to as few as 200, perhaps even less. But enough so that the, the soldiers were under the orders, under the direction of a man who was known as a Kiliarchus, which was a ruler over a thousand men, a Roman uh, official. But as they enter, look at verse 45. As they entered, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Here's the betrayal itself. And really the, the point of no return for Jesus as these events are kicked off here. Judas Iscariot betrays the Son of God both by what he says and by what he does. First he calls him Rabbi, a, a, a word that technically refers just to a teacher, but by this time had escalated to be an honorific title. My Lord, my Master, my Teacher. He uses that language to refer to Jesus, a word that I'm sure he had used a hundred times in the past. But now as he uses it, as he calls him that, the text says that he kissed him. In the movie... The Godfather. Two, uh, Michael Corleone on New Year's Eve in one of the most um, well-known scenes from that movie 
comes up to his brother Fredo at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve and grabs him by the face and gives to him il bacio della morte, the kiss of death. And that is what Judas gives to Jesus here in a way, marking him as the one to be seized, marking him as the one marked for death. So two expressions of intimacy and friendship turned into actions of the deepest betrayal the world has ever known. And verse 46, according to the instruction, says that they laid hands on him and seized him. The Son of Man, the creator of all things, was now in the hands of men, just as he said he would be. In the hands of men who, as Jesus would mention later, knew not what they did. Oh, they knew they were arresting Jesus. They knew why, but they didn't realize what they were doing. This was what Jesus had predicted, that he would be delivered into the hands of men, and now it has happened. The second word, then, we want to look at is confrontation. These Roman soldiers were borrowed by the Sanhedrin uh, to be prepared if there were some sort of large-scale confrontation, some large-scale rebellion when they came to arrest Jesus, who, remember, at this point was still quite popular among the, the populace, among the people. And these Roman soldiers, like I mentioned earlier, were, were garrisoned, were kept in the city to, to keep things peaceable, to keep things from getting out of hand. And especially the Passover having just taken place, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread now taking place. Uh, remember all of these people that are in Jerusalem, all this nationalism that's being stirred up, the, the numbers of the Roman soldiers who would be kept in Jerusalem during this time have grown as well as the population of, of the city to keep the peace. And now this group, this number of soldiers have come also to keep the peace in case there happens to be a rebellion. And as it turns out, there was a confrontation, but it was anything but large scale. And as we see here, Jesus himself quashes it immediately. And, as if we couldn't have guessed, it's Peter. It's Peter who acts. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that. Mark says there that it is, uh, he identifies him as one of those who stood by. But John, in his record of this event, tells us that it's Peter. Again, we might have guessed that. Uh, perhaps after his discussion with Jesus, where Jesus predicted that Peter would particularly fail where he would deny Jesus before this night is over. Perhaps Peter thinks that this is what Jesus was talking about. And so he is for sure that he is not going to let that happen. He is going to prove himself in this particular moment. And so Mark says that he drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. It's interesting, ironic, actually, that Peter, before a large group of Roman soldiers and several Jewish authorities, that he shows a certain amount of, of bravery, if not foolhardiness, 
Uh, but later, when he's confronted by one single Jewish servant girl, he'll crumble. But Peter attacks, draws his sword, and attacks not just any soldier, but a particular one that is mentioned, the one that, that could be the one leading this Jewish contingent, the, the servant of the high priest. Now, it has long been suggested by some commentators that Peter was actually trying to take this guy's head off with his sword, uh, or perhaps he was just swinging wildly, as Peter sometimes likes to say things because he doesn't know what to say. Perhaps he's doing something that he doesn't quite know what to do, so he just swings, but Peter's not a soldier and was probably fortunate, as he would consider it, to do what he did, to cut the servant of the high priest's ear off. Now, now Mark just mentions this and then moves on. The other Gospels give a little more detail of, of this, this little confrontation that give a fuller picture. First, as the, the soldiers prepare to seize Jesus, the apostles turn to Jesus and say, should we strike with the sword? Earlier, we find out that they had a couple of swords, and they're asking Jesus, you know, should we defend you? Then, without waiting for an answer, there's Peter for you. Peter does attack the servant of the high priest, who John also identifies as Malchus, is his name. Jesus tells Peter after this to put his sword away. And remember, tells him that he who takes the sword will die by it. And he then says, Jesus did, did, don't you know that I could call on the Father and that he would immediately send more than 12 legions of angels? But, he said, how then should the scripture be fulfilled that this must happen? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me, Jesus says. And then he tells his disciples, no more of this. No, no violence here. And, he, and he heals the man's ear. Think of that. This man who is part of this group that's come to arrest and to ultimately kill Jesus, Jesus shows compassion on him and heals his ear right there in the garden. A reminder to us that we don't need to defend Christianity with a sword. Christianity is not an honor religion like Islam is, where we have to defend the honor of God. God defends his own honor. His honor is intrinsic. He has the honor that he has. We don't need to take up arms individually or collectively to defend it. And Jesus is a picture of that here as he tells Peter, Put your sword away. This isn't what this is about. And after he rebukes the disciples about it, well, Peter especially, Jesus then rebukes those who have come to seize him. Look at verses 48 and 49. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. He says, Do you need all of this? Have you come out against a robber? 
That word, robber, is a very pejorative term. And it's a term that will come back up again later when Jesus will again be identified with this type of person and be crucified between two of them. It's the same word in the Greek there and here. Have you come out as against a robber? You've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Remember, though, that the the Jews and the Sanhedrin, uh, they still harbored these wrong expectations of what the Messiah was come to do. Remember, they saw him as a a political uh, leader who would come and would rescue and and allow the, the Jews to be out from under the the thumb of the Roman people through force. You know, they still had that thought about the Messiah. And though they didn't believe that Jesus was that Messiah, they knew that others did, and so they perhaps expected an appropriate, under that mindset, violent response to arrest Jesus, and thus they brought along this Roman, Roman force. But Jesus says this is all unnecessary. He says, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You had every opportunity in the city during the day to take me, but you come at night outside the city with a mob of armed soldiers. We really see here Jesus' restraint. He could have easily gotten away from them, but remember also that that moment passed earlier when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. This is the will of God, that this is all all playing out. And Jesus is not just resigned to, but is prepared for the fulfillment of his mission. And to the fulfillment, he says, of the Scripture, because he says here, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Or as Matthew records in a little fuller uh, record of Jesus' statement there, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And beloved, remember this. As we come to the final hours of Jesus' public ministry, we are again reminded that all of the things that have happened, all of the things that will happen to Jesus are happening according to God's will and God's plan. This is not an accident. This is not something that was not foreseen. In fact, it is part of the decree of God. Jesus is a victim of evil, plotting men, but he's not a victim of chance. He is, as always, fulfilling completely the work of redeeming men, the work that the Father gave him to do. And he's doing it willingly. And he did because of his love for the sons and daughters of Adam's fallen race. And now, as Jesus said at the end of verse 49, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. We see one more aspect of Scripture being fulfilled here in these next verses as we look, thirdly, at the abandonment. You will recall, no doubt, that on the way from the Last Supper to the garden where they now are, that Jesus had told his disciples, you will all fall away. That is, you will desert me in my moment of need. You will leave me. 
And why? We talked about it. Because they were weak, yes. Because they were afraid, yes. But also because, as Jesus says to them here, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The scripture said it will happen, and so it will happen. And while that's a tragic thing here, that truth is, a, is of immeasurable comfort and blessing to us sitting here today, isn't it? That scripture cannot be broken. That scripture cannot fail to come to pass. That every word in the scripture is true. For example, the one that says that every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ, Christian. The Bible promises it. That means God promises it, and that means you can, well, you can quite literally rest assured that it will be done. You have all that you need. You have redemption. You have the indwelling spirit as God's assurance that you have an abiding, eternal, glorious inheritance in heaven. You have if you are in Christ, eternal life. Because the Bible says that you do. Because God says that you do. You know, there's that old bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I know I've mentioned it before that we need to just cut out that middle part. Because sometimes our faith is, well, like Peter's and the other disciples, which is, not so great. Sometimes the I believe it part is a little shaky, isn't it, if we're honest? But fortunately, the blessings that we have are not dependent on how strongly, how well, how fully we grasp the truths of the Bible, but they are dependent on the strength and the faithfulness of the God who promises them. And those promises are yours in Christ. Now, I know we're Presbyterians, but that's a good place for an amen, I think. So let's go back to the garden. Jesus had said that the disciples would desert him. They said, no, we won't. Peter said, well, they might, but I won't. I'll die with you. I won't desert you. I certainly won't deny you. Well, beloved, guess who was right? Verse 50 says, They all left him and fled. The scripture was fulfilled. And here we have a reminder of how much, how easily the faith of Christians can fail. So let us remain humble humble in our estimation of ourselves. And let us, therefore, be charitable to others when they fall, when they don't live up to, well, let's be honest, to our expectations. And that happens. Don't expect too much of others. Don't expect perfection. We're all sinners. None of us have arrived. So don't be surprised. Don't be appalled when fellow sinners act like sinners. As the Bible commands us, let us bear with one another's weaknesses. It's so tempting 
It's so wrong to be too disappointed in our brothers and sisters. As the disciples failed Christ, we all will fail one another. Everyone, we all will fail others. Christian brothers and sisters will fail one another. Your pastor will fail you. Relatives will fail you. Friends will fail you. But you know what the good thing is. I see someone pointing up. That's right. God will never fail you. He will never fail you, Christian. He will never fail to keep his promises. But remember that everyone else may. And Jesus' disciples failed him here as Jesus knew that they would. And Jesus knows, by the way, that you will fail not just one another, but him as well. And that, beloved, is why he died. Because you are a failure. Because your first instinct is to take somebody's head off or to run. That is why he died. That is why he did not run. That is why he said, your will be done. So we conclude then with verses 51 and 52. And Mark, and Mark alone inserts this strange little comment here, almost seems like an afterthought about this young man and his escape with his life, but nothing else, not even his clothes. Who is this? Why is it here? That's a point of ongoing debate. It's likely that the original readers knew who it was and that he could corroborate the, the facts related here. But whoever this is represents sort of the, the details here of the desertion of the rest of the disciples. He's not one of the apostles. He is a young man who followed him. The, the 12 have fled, and then we hear about this other man. We also don't know why they seized this man, except that perhaps when the disciples started to run, and that they did, they just scattered. Perhaps the arresting party started trying to just arrest anyone who's running, and this man was the unfortunate one to be grabbed, and as they grab him, he is so concerned to get away that he, like Joseph did when he was grabbed by Potiphar's wife, he pulls away and leaves his garment behind. Sort of a picture, a, a, a specific instance of sort of the every man for himself nature of the disciples' panicked flight here from the garden and from Jesus. Now, much Christian tradition says that this young man was none other than Mark the writer of the gospel, and that he has inserted this little episode, albeit anonymously, to authenticate his presence here uh, in these things, to sort of write himself in in an anonymous way. Think of how uh, Alfred Hitchcock always had a cameo in his, in his films. This could be Mark doing the same thing. We don't know for sure. But now, they've all gone. The only one of the 12 remaining in the garden is the one who betrayed him. And so Jesus is left now isolated. 
totally bereft of any human support. And we leave him this morning firmly in the hands of his enemies that he might go on to fulfill the will of the Father for our freedom. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Christ. We thank you for what he has done. We cannot, we can read, and we thank you for the the records that we have here of what he went through, but we cannot imagine what he went through for us, even here. But certainly, Lord, as we look at the things that will come in the coming weeks, the coming hours as he had it. We pray, Lord, that we would look at these things and and love Christ all the more for what he has willingly done for us. And we ask this all in his glorious, wonderful, loving name. Amen.